This time on Poll Hub, we're taking a trip way back to the election of 2020. There was a lot made of how the polls did last year, lots of coverage that produced a lot of heat, but maybe not so much light. Now, the main organization of public opinion science has completed a study and reached a surprising, at least to some, conclusion. We're going to find out what that is. We'll speak with one of the authors. Then we go even further back in time to find out what women of one era thought the next generation of women would face. Some of those answers sound pretty crazy in 2021. So we'll look at those. There's a lot to do. So let's get to it. And hi, everybody. Welcome to Poll Hub. I'm J.D. Dapper. And I'm Barbara Carvalho. And I'm Lee Marengoff. And uh, we have talked a lot internally, and we've talked a lot on this podcast about uh, 2020, the election, and the polls. We are polls, so we've talked a lot about the polls and how the polls did. Uh, this sounds a lot like deja vu all over again, to quote one of your favorite Yankees, Lee, <laughs> um, and 2016. But uh, 2020, once again, the polling industry faced uh, a lot of challenges. Some polls were dead on. Our Arizona poll, dead on. It was a tie. Biden won by you know, 10, 12,000 votes. But uh, we and other polls missed in some other states and some national polls missed. And uh, so the organization that we all belong to, uh, a part of called the American Association for Public Opinion Research, we call them APOR, um, uh, put together a panel, a group of people to find out what happened in 2020. And we are lucky enough to have the chairman of that panel with us, uh, Dr. Joshua Clinton, he's a professor of political science at Vanderbilt. My friends call it Vandy because I went there down in Nashville. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Before we do anything, can you tell us what you're kind of what you were uh, expected to do as a panel, what you set out to do, uh, and how how you kind of came about going to that task after the the polls closed on election night of 2020? Yeah, certainly. So. In the fall of 2019, the APOR, you know, the Association of American Political Opinion Researchers kind of put together a task force that was going to be tasked with basically collecting all the publicly available polling data on 2020, including the primaries, and then documenting how well the polls did. And then if issues arose, trying to do our level best to diagnose kind of what went wrong to help the polling profession go forward to give it basically an unbiased, you know, overview of what was going on. And so they put together a task force of which, you know, I was the chair that had many other individuals that are superly capable, including both from the industry, from academia, from nonprofits, basically a wide range of experience and expertise that all work together collaboratively and cooperatively to try to give our level best about what went down. And so throughout the entire 2020 election cycle, you know, we were tasked with collecting all that data. And so we have all that data and then analyzing it to figure out you know, how well the polls did compared to the certified vote. And so we had to wait till all the vote was certified in January before we could really begin our task. And then even then to try to figure out how well the polls did, where there were misses, where there was, you know, where they did okay. And to the extent there were systematic differences, kind of what might help explain some of the, the errors, the polling error that, that we found in 2020. So it was a pretty lengthy task, especially with the pandemic and everyone kind of being busy. We had way too many Zoom meetings, uh, uh, to kind of discuss that because, you know, it's very important as the public facing part of APOR that everything we did was by unanimity. Moreover, it was kind of industry wide. So we weren't trying to like rate pollsters or go into the details of a particular pollsters or polls, but kind of give a broad overview to help allow the profession going forward to kind of figure out, you know, this is what on balance went, happened. And so to allow pollsters to kind of experiment and kind of, you know, take that information going forward. Uh, to help innovate. 
Yes, so Josh, so so you um, had signed on for this before the election day and probably saw this as a great compliment to have been asked to, based on your expertise, to take on this task. And then election night, did you have an oh my God moment? What have I done? I had several of those, like because there was no longer election night, it's election week. And so when they first asked me, I was like, are you sure you want me? And, and then election night, I'm like, I'm sure I don't want me anymore. So like for that whole process, when election night comes, the results were coming out, I was like, oh my goodness, what have I got myself uh, signed up for? But that said, like everyone on the task force was super professional and like it was obviously a really important job and task. And so it was actually a real pleasure to be able to kind of spend a lot of time kind of digging in and try to figure out what we could actually say. Um, so yeah, it did consume more of my life than I had hoped or wanted to, but uh, you know, hopefully... Um, there was some resolution, even though the ultimate conclusions of the report, you know, are still a little bit ambiguous in terms of what we can actually say about things. But those are some of the limitations that we just live with in terms of what the data is that we have available to us. Yeah, the headlines, the headlines were pretty, were pretty rough. Um, I think the Washington Post said uh, something like 2020 presidential polls suffered worst performance in decades. Wall Street Journal, worst polling win uh, miss in 40 years. Is that what the conclusion of the report was? Well, technically, right. I mean, that is accurate, right? And so if you look at the amount of error, and to by, by error, we meant basically to the extent if you look at the margin between what the polls predicted Biden and Trump would be versus what the certified vote were, I mean, the errors were technically bigger than they ever been. So at the state level polls, like the average error was 4.3 points overstatement of, of Biden. And so, yeah, that's the largest it's been um, basically since 1980. Um, but the other hand, like. Were you surprised that was the takeaway? No, I, because that's the kind of most that's a, that's the most provocative take. Right. And so that's like that's the headline capture. That's what people talk about. But but you put that in broader context. And that's not to say that that number is good, but like. In some ways, it's kind of, you know, you think about the difficulty of the task that pollsters have trying to figure out a pre-election polling, especially in 2020, right? We had a pandemic. We had new voting systems being done in a lot of the critical states. We knew a lot of elections were going to be super close. And so, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty, even in a normal election, trying to figure out, well, who's going to vote on an election on election day or in this time in the pre-election in the early voting? And then. Are you, do you have the right kind of electorate? What's turnout going to be? How are they going to break? I mean, that's a really, really complicated task. And I think sometimes people equate, you know, you've got a number with being precision, but on the other hand, like 4.3 points of error, like it's not super great, but it's also kind of remarkable if you think about the, the, right, the level of difficulty involved. And then the other thing you think about is like, you know, a lot of things, what we take about from polls is like, do you really care? I mean, you do, right? If a particular, if you're uh, trying to allocate political resources, but like if you're one or two or three points off versus kind of, usually we use pre-election polls. I use pre-election polls. It gives me a sense like what's going on in the country? Like, where's it going to be close? Where's there going to be blowouts? And, and by that perspective, like, you know, 76% of the, of the state level presidential polls got the right answer correct. And that's including, you know, those kind of cases like Arizona, where it's essentially a tied race. Like either way you go, like it's, you know, it's it's so close, it doesn't really matter. And if you look at those polls where the margin was actually greater than what their statistical level of precision measured using the margin of error. So like if you just double the margin of error, which is a generous interpretation, but they're like 98% of those polls that had a margin greater than kind of the, the twice the margin of error correctly identified by the winner. And so I think like in some sense we got, um, I don't know, 2008 and 2012 gave us the idea that I think 
were more precise, right? Because the poll, you know, nailed it exactly. And so now, you know, not to say there's not issues in polling, right? And we identify some of them that are kind of concerning going forward. But I think in general, like getting a, a better sense among the public and the consumers about, you know, there's a lot of decisions that go into making a poll. And, you know, despite all those, like, it's not super great, but it's also, you know, it's hard. It's really, really hard to do so. So what would you have liked the takeaway, the main takeaway to, to be? What do you think was the most important thing that the committee actually found? I mean, I think that, I mean, the most, con- I mean, the most important thing that I've, I thought that we found was that, you know, it's something that we couldn't prove, but it's something that's been lurking and kind of concerning pollsters for a long, long time. It's that, you know, we're in a world in which the response rates, as you guys know, it's like, it's going down and down and down. And for a long time, it's been okay. And we've had to do like statistical adjustments to try to make sure that those adjustments are kind of representative of the voters. But, you know, in 2020, that those adjustments didn't seem sufficient for the task, right? Even people are waiting on partisanship or kind of 2016 vote, right? They didn't get it right. And so the concerning, you know, the thing is that maybe the polling problems are not so much technological as psychological in terms of the people that are answering polls, you know, in particular, it seems like the skews that we've seen last two election cycles may be more um, unbalanced partisanship. So maybe there's certain sets of Republican voters or people who vote for Republicans who are willing to vote on election day, but not participate in polls because they don't trust the media, they don't trust pollsters, they don't trust institutions. And that's, I mean, that's not necessarily a happy tune. I mean, it's not a happy tune, but I think to us as the task force, like that seemed to be us the looming issue that, you know, we, we couldn't, you know, to be clear, we can't prove that, right? And that's, that's one of the frustrations we had because we don't have that data on who didn't respond. But it seems to be like if you looked around, like the number of new voters seem to be a little bit understated for support for Republicans. And just in general, the, you know, so if you get, example, if you reweighted the data, to try to match 2016 votes, you are still like, you know, you can't make it work to also match 2020. And so there doesn't seem to be. You sure know that feeling. Yeah. So it, <laughs> Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah. So it's, it's kind of, there's, there's an issue there in terms of the people that are willing to take polls, at least in 2020, that was kind of, you know, that's a nuanced, right. So we can have that conversation on a podcast because, you know, and your audience understands that more, but that's a, that's a level of nuance. that's hard to communicate. It's not a headline. No, it's not, it's not a headline, right? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I, th- I think a couple of the points that you're making are, are really very important. And the, and the first being that this conflation of, you know, precision and quantification, which you alluded to, the, the notion that, you know, we're putting out numbers and, you know, we always talk about science being a little messy, but it's the best thing we got. And so, you know, when you see those numbers, you know, it's off to the races. Um, I think also, you know, you're trying to talk about what the context is that we all function within uh, when we're doing polls. Um, I wanted to mention that um, I was on the committee in 2016, and that was the group that came up with the magic bullet, which was waiting by education. Um, I didn't necessarily share in that um, and, you know, took a little heat for trying to come up with some alternative views of that. Um, I think what we saw in 2020 was that fix didn't work. And I think your report alluded to that very strongly. But I think you also, and this is wonderful, you put to bed certain concerns people have had over the Donald Trump period. Uh, and I wonder if you could just talk about a few of those things, or you can comment on anything I was saying there. Yeah. My, my little rant. Yeah. So, so, you know, so like a lot of people, I mean, it, it's a complicated thing. So we're kind of looking at to see 
you know, some of the things that people were talking about, which was like whether it was late voters or whether it was people who were, you know, lying to poll, you know, responding, but then like these, you know, and that that's a very again a very nuanced term, right? When people say like shy Trump voters, right? You ask five different people, they have five different definitions of what that means. And so that's a very kind of loaded, if not ambiguous term. And so, you know, but it didn't seem to be the case that people were lying, right? So the errors that we found were not endemic to asking about President Trump in particular, right? Because we found similar level, if not larger errors when we asked about Republican senatorial and gubernatorial contests. Now- yeah, important contribution. That, yeah, so, but, but that doesn't, you know, but one thing that we couldn't know is like, and this was kind of where it's a little unsettling for us that, you know, we wish we could nail this down, but like, you know, there was a level of political dialogue, as you know, around 2020 about voter suppression polls, about fake news, right? That kind of seeded around the kind of the, the politics. And it's plausible that, you know, those types of language basically affected how people chose to participate in polls, right? Maybe participating in polling now becomes not an act of civic duty, but it becomes a partisan political act because of language that people are using, which then raises the question about, and this is the difficulty thing about, you know, we didn't really, you know, people say, why, why didn't you suggest what we should do? And so well, we didn't really, that first of all, that we didn't think that was our, our, our goal, but also like, it's not really clear to us really kind of, we're going to leave that up to the pollsters to figure out because, you know, so for example, it's possible that the errors that we saw could have been unique to presidential election and the candidacy of President Trump, which is that you had a bunch of voters who were infrequently participating, but were kind of, were drawn out by the candidacy of President Trump to vote in this particular election in a presidential election. But in a midterm election where we all know the electorate changes, right? Maybe things go back. Like the polls in 2018 did really well relative historically. So people thought that, all right, we've, maybe we've solved it after 2016. Then 2020 comes around, it's like, eh, not so much, right? And so again, is the difference between a midterm and a presidential election, like the, the difference in the electorate, how consequential is that? Versus how consequential is it to the types of arguments that were being made and the type of political dialogue that may have changed whether or not people were willing to kind of participate in polls, right? And so either one of those could have explained the uniqueness of what ha happened in 2020. And the reality is that we're not going to really know. We're not going to really know of 2022 either, right? Because if the polls do well in 2022, right, does that mean polls are, are, are good, right? Or does that just mean the difference between a midterm versus a presidential election where the errors that we're observing are because of particular types of voters or, or, and kind of non-respondents who only show up in presidential election years because those are kind of less, you know, the, the different dynamics of the elections that are involved. And so unfortunately, there's more questions there uh, that, than answers. And so like, I thought, you know, what we did is kind of, you know, what does the data allow us to say and what can we prove? And then try to restrict ourselves and just being honest about like, look, there's some things that we don't know and it's gonna be hard to know um, just because the difficulty is it like, you know, you know, like when you try to look at this, like we still don't know, for example, the fraction of Democrats and Republicans that voted right in the electorate. You, you know, we, we try to figure out what fraction of new voters were there. And you don't know that either because people move and if you talk to different voting file companies, they have different numbers about the fraction of new voters. And so the amount of information, which in some sense makes what the polls did remarkable, right, because given the amount of stuff that we don't know about like the electorate, even seven months after, right, the votes were certified, you know, it just kind of the level of difficulty is really, really hard um, to diagnose this, this kind of information. I had a fear during the last week of the election with concern over the mail delivery of, of um, uh, absentee ballots. And my fear was that the polls could be both right and wrong at the same time, that maybe the people we were talking to were telling us they were voting, and they were voting for Biden. 
and then the thing got you know shredded along the way. I know there's no evidence of any of that. There's been some anecdotal reports. Oh no, we're not going to go. We're gonna, <laughs> not going to go down the rigged fraud okay, conspiracy right, withdraw, theories. Withdraw. <laughs> okay, set you know, settle down. There's enough of those on both sides. Of the you were going to ask them something. To keep us to, to ask you know to keep us political scientists in business for a long time. So, but you know, we we noticed uh, in in our poll experiments uh, um, after 2016. Uh, we noticed we, we took a look at cell frame sample. And I just wondered if the committee had an opportunity. I know you looked at you know different modes of polling, you know the online, the on IVR, the the traditional telephone dual frame polling. But I didn't know if you got a chance to take a look at any of the sampling issues. Geography was a really really big deal um, in the election, and we we discussed it not only in the you know in the industry and in the poll you know in, in polling discussions but in, in politics too. And one of the things that we saw in 2016 actually had to do with the sample itself. That is that there's a slight bias towards population uh, clusters um, in a region. So that is like phone numbers themselves are more likely uh, to be from urban suburban communities when we draw samples or at least population centers in, in rural counties. And this increases actually for some of the sample products that many of us use uh, to, in, to improve productivity. I know we try to adjust uh, usually after data collection, but, but some of it seems that, you know, we can't balance what isn't there. So we, if we haven't talked to these people um, and they're un, underrepresented, we don't end up getting them back in our sample by trying to balance back to those, those geographies. Did the committee get a chance to take a look at uh, any, of, any of those issues? I know it's more technical, um, but it's kind of the front end before we even start talking to voters. No, I mean, that's a great point, right? And the other point is that, you know, people do like registration-based samples, for example, right? To say, to basically adjust costs, you try to figure out well, who's like, who's a likely voter, right? Or that I can, so I can minimize like the cost of kind of polling. And that could also like, if there's new voters who are infrequent voters, that could also, you know, create, create particular issues. And yeah. And so, I mean, cause you have to like merge back a phone number that you find from someplace and then, you know, you're not, not likely to catch mobile people. And so there's lots of different issues involved that are all excellent. Unfortunately, uh, the, the task force itself is pretty limited in that, in our access to the data there. So you know, we're just going out there collecting all the publicly released polls and then working with, you know, organizations that kind of shared us some of their data. But it, but the data that we got was in no means comprehensive just because, like, it's a pro bono committee done by, like, 18 individuals. And in the meantime, it's like we're doing our regular lives and, raise, you know, you know, hopefully paying attention to our kids and stuff like that. And so, like, the amount of work it would take to do that is is ginormous, right, to do a technical term. But that doesn't mean it's not true. It just that it was very difficult for our from our perspective to do this kind of analysis because all we were basically relying on is what people told us that they were doing. And as you know, a lot of the, the presentation of like, well, what are you waiting on? It's unknown. Like what you, you know, some people don't even report their margin of error or their sampling frame. And like, so other people were asking, well, shouldn't have you evaluate how people ask the questions differently? And well, maybe that would be true, but like we didn't have access to that particular information. Like the task of trying to quantify all the 2000 polls that were being done right, to give a snapshot and understand exactly what the decisions were being made, right, it would be amazing if that resource existed. But the, the practical reality of the situation is very hard for an ad hoc 
task force to kind of get into that level of granularity and the technical. That doesn't mean it's not super important, but just we didn't have the bandwidth to kind of do those particular questions, even though, as you, as you point, right, it's possible that coverage issues and geography, given how partisan things are now, you know, is, is a really important question and could have really important implications going forward. Yeah, one of the things I learned, Josh, about uh, uh, what you do also, obviously, at Vanderbilt and with the task force, uh, but also you have an important role election night with NBC, which is so sort of makes us distant cousins because of our battleground state polling for them. Could you just, uh, before we let you go, just tell a little bit about uh, that work and, and how consequential that can be? Yeah, so so I, I'm an election night senior election analyst. So what that means is that uh, they sequester me in this you know dark room mm -hmm. without access to the outside world uh, for this time for like a week. It was like horrible, right? But and, oh, <laughs> right, and so like you're so what you do is you find as the information comes in, you basically crank the you crank the data. We write statistical models to kind of compare how the votes are comparing to last time, what the different types of votes are, how many votes are outstanding, and like when we reach the ninety nine point nine five percent level of certainty, right? Then we tell the people on television that are, we're confident we can project this particular state for a particular race. And so it's kind of using not so much polling, although it is a little bit of exit polling, but most of it's kind of just analyzing the vote that comes in and trying to discern the patterns in the vote across different states and across different counties trying to make projections, you know, on election night. And that was no picnic given the way the votes were coming in and being counted, because as we know, it took days till we got to that point. No, it's horrifying. And then, and the, you know, and, it's re and you realize that also, like, just the way that we do elections, where everything is at the state level, right? like federalism, right, concerned about strong national government and the, and the founding mean that we decentralized all the election administration. But that means every state, if not every county, has different ways of doing it. And right. So, for example, Michigan, there's not a central place for the secretary of state where you can get all the state results. Right. You go to the Web page and it says go to each of our counties, get the data. And so you get different data from different counties. And so it's really, you know, you get a real picture of the, the diversity of America in terms of how they administer elections and how they report elections, which makes it, it particularly challenging. But also, I think, really super important right, to kind of figure out and to get a sense like what the election is telling us, even though it may be a longer story than people are using to, right? It's, a, it's kind of an external validation about how the votes are being counted, who's counting the votes and kind of what the outcome is so that people can understand and get some transparency about, you know, how elections are, are held in the United States. Well, Josh, thanks for sharing the thankless task that you took on of uh, putting together the report on the 2020 election. Uh, it strikes me that that we start where we end, uh, we end where we started, which was that the, the headlines didn't necessarily capture the nuance of what you found, just like the headlines at the beginning of uh, during the election didn't necessarily capture the fact that when you look at the averages, the polls weren't really all that far off. It's just that most people expected Biden to win by 10 points and it didn't happen. So lots of expectations out in the media versus what became the reality. And uh, I, I think people should appreciate the honesty that you didn't come back or the group didn't come back and say, here's the magic bullet. Here's the answer. But that ambiguity of we don't know, but here's some of what to look at. I think that honesty is uh, should be much appreciated. And maybe the headlines, as Barbara pointed out, missed that. But uh, Josh Clinton, uh, professor of political science at Vanderbilt University, and more importantly for this discussion, the chair of the, the APOR panel that looked at the 2020 election. Thanks so much for uh, sharing some of your pain with us. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Anytime, anytime.
Well, as Jay promised in the uh, open, switching gears a little bit and going even further back in time, 1979, we get our fun fact today, uh, a poll that was done uh, by the Virginia Slims American Women's Poll, 1979, and they asked, what disadvantages, if any, the next generation of women will have that are greater than those of women today? Um, Well, this was kind of like a real throwback in time, and I'll welcome your reactions to it. First of all, 27% of women said there were no disadvantages. Okay, so this is, everything's going to be going to be fine. However, there were a whole bunch of people who talked about the workplace. And I thought some of the responses were pretty, well, you guys react. 13% said homes and children will suffer because women are out working, less family life, a woman's place is in the home. Mm. Yeah, yeah, well, that's a, uh... That's certainly an opinion, but uh, that's still that's <laughs> oh, still there's a that's a part that's of struggling to opinion. be polite. <laughs> All right, let me throw, let me throw this one at you. Well, no, you know what I'm actually thinking of. I'm thinking of a you know a similar question uh, that we found from the 1940s that asked whether women should even be allowed to work. Okay, and and the overwhelming, you know, the overwhelming opinion that women should stay in the home, um, you know, to raise children, that was the best thing, you know, for uh, women to do, that was their skill set. So, you, you know, you know, if we're taking a look now, you know, 30 years even later from the 1940s to the 1970s, the fact that, you know, only 13%, um, you know, of women felt that way. I mean, I think talks about the, uh, the tremendous change. Well, we got more. Okay. All right. We got 9% said they will lose respect they now have from men. They won't be treated as ladies, won't be given special courtesies like men opening the doors. I still um, open the doors for women. Yes, I do too. I'll open the door for anybody. You know, I'm happy to. Anyway, 9% said they will have more responsibilities, more problems to cope with, have to be more self-sufficient, more will be expected of them. And a 4% uh, women will miss out on being home to raise a family, miss out on the real meaning of marriage and family. Boy, this is a, you know, I'm thinking of the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, I'm thinking of the gender gap that emerged in politics all after all this. So, wow, heavy stuff. Would the women who answered that survey be really surprised by the opinions and attitudes of the women today? If you could go back, go forward in time and back in time. Yeah. 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 Actually, there's one that stood out for another reason to me on this, because it is very true, although I'm not sure that anybody in 1979 really was thinking about it because it's a macroeconomic thing. But uh, 4%, it's the top in our list uh, in in terms of they just ordered it. It's not ordered in the number the way people answered. More women will have to work or they'll have no choices to working. Women will have to work to help support the family. And that's one of the biggest economic macroeconomic changes since the 70s is women having to work for family incomes to be at the same level as they were in families in the 70s when there was a single breadwinner. So, I mean, it's interesting. You pull out little nuggets like that that actually did come true for different reasons than we were, you know, maybe thinking about. But I thought that one was really interesting. Yeah, no, that's a, 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 clearly. And then this is a... Uh... This is all about the social and the cultural stuff. And that really had to do with the economics. And that's really what really drove, you know, women into the workplace more. But anyway, that's it for Fun Fact this week. And that's going to do it for this edition of Poll Hub. 
Poll Hub is a production of the Marist Poll at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York. I'm Mary Griffith and Poll Hub's executive producer. Casey Schaff is our production supervisor. Ashley Marcinek is our production assistant and Mark Cello Bettman is our trusted editor. Thanks to the Roper Center Archive at Cornell University. They provide us with the ability to look back at survey questions and results over the decades. If you have questions or comments, reach out to us on social media. We're at Maris Poll on Twitter and Maris Poll on Facebook and Instagram. And while you're at it, check out our free series of short online learning modules. The Maris Poll Academy can be found on marispoll.com. Finally, if you like what you hear on Poll Hub, please consider leaving a review on your podcasting app of choice. Positive reviews help others find us. And while you're at it, go ahead and subscribe. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you back here next week.